Welcome to the Seasons of Change podcast with Tom Kitching. The story, sounds and music of Tom's 18-month journey busking around England. Episode 2, Butcher Shops as Performance Art. Bolton. Bolton was a grim and a stormy setting, and a cruel wind found a funnel in the high-sided Victorian grandeur of the main street by Marks and Spencers. I set up here for a play, determined to make the best of such an unpromising situation. I was wrapped in my faithful and ancient barber jacket and woolly hat, and I positioned myself in front of the shop's enormous lingerie poster, testing far beyond breaking point that old maxim that sex sells. <laughs> Standing before an image of a large and well-filled bra, backlit and prominent against the gloom of the street, I pressed my bow into the string to stop it being whipped away in the gale, developing an ugly and crunchy sort of tone, and I did my best. A woman prepared a few coins for me, but paused and asked, Do you really need it? This was a new question to me, and so I stopped and thought about the answer. Well, music is my sole income. I'm writing a book about England, and this is how I'm paying my way round. She nodded. This was worthy enough. My husband's writing a book too. It's about the cricketers from Bolton who went on to play test matches for England. It's terribly interesting. Here you go. At least you're doing something. And dropping her coins in my case, she gestured around at the homeless in every doorway, constantly searching for spaces away from the sapping wind where they might still have a chance of a coin, choosing between shelter and the possibility of a meal. I'd heard this false equivalence before between my busking and rough sleepers in need of money, and I was upset by it and I wanted to respond. By the time I'd worked through this chain of thoughts and arrived at an answer, she was already gone and I was left to play on. A man had appeared in the doorway of Marks and Spencers, wearing a bright blue fleece, pink-cheeked and well-fed. He relaxed casually against the wall and looked up and down the street. A minute later, a homeless man came bursting out of a shop and fleece man gave chase, tackling the escapee into a doorway across the street. It was an unfair contest as the homeless man had a limp and was drawn and weak, all elbows and seized joints. Chocolate eggs spilled from his bag as he ran, and other homeless people, alert to the raid, grabbed them and scattered. Further store officers arrived from neighbouring shops and concentrated their efforts on the first thief, forcing him roughly into a corner. I wanted to shout back angrily at the woman, See, they are doing something! <laughs> but she was gone. Imagine being so desperate and cold and hungry that you'd nick some chocolate eggs. At least they'd gone for the good ones. This is not just an egg raid. This is a Peruvian 100% cocoa Marks and Spencer's egg. 
was a strange and unworthy thought amidst my general anger and frustration at the tragedy of the scene. I'd stopped playing. This didn't seem like the sort of situation that needed a jolly soundtrack from me. They took the thief away. If he was lucky, he'd be arrested and get a warm night in the cell with a meal. If he was unlucky, they'd let him go again. I picked out the coins the lady had given me, and I dropped them off with the first rough sleeper I saw. It had been a dramatic afternoon, and though I'd not originally planned to be in Bolton, I knew as I packed up I'd be back soon. returned a few days later. The sun was glorious, the wind entirely absent, Bolton was transformed. It is a really rather beautiful town, containing some of the finest architecture in the northwest of England. The prosperity that the cotton industry once generated has left Bolton a fine legacy of buildings. Home to both Arkwright and Crompton, two of the fathers of the Industrial Revolution, Bolton once made a lot of money, well, at least for the mill owners. The centrepiece of the town hall and adjacent arc of municipal buildings is properly grand, as is the old market hall, now a shopping arcade, all decorative cast iron and cascading light. The top floor smelled invitingly of popcorn and led to a cinema. Amongst these and many other gems, 60s concrete units have muscled in, overlapping in a way that reminded me of Budapest, where European beauty and Soviet brutalism butt up against one another. One of the big municipal buildings advertised an aquarium, which seemed so unlikely I had to visit it. In the basement, about a dozen tanks are set into a room containing a modest but apparently singularly valuable and rare collection of tropical freshwater fish. A man was carefully hoovering fish shit from the bottom of a tank into a horrible bucket. He was humming to himself and seemed to be happy with his lot in life. I ate my lunch pie and looked at the rays and catfish, bright-coloured and exotic, from the mountains of New Guinea, the cloud forests of Peru, the heart of Madagascar. I wondered how they felt about living in Bolton. <laughs> Bolton is changing and adapting. The old Three Crowns, once a huge town centre pub, has shrunk to half its original size, the other half having become a shop unit and then disused. A small pub sheltering meekly under a huge frontage. The Bolton Time Ball no longer operates since the shop beneath it closed. Previously, the large golden ball would rise up at 12.55pm, dropping down exactly at 1pm. Nobody local paid it much thought, but I'd rather liked it and was rather sad to see it a victim of the economy. Some streets were showing the first signs of gentrification, an apologetic coffee shop here, a male grooming parlour there, not quite densely clustered yet to achieve that critical mass and attract a breeding population of hipsters. I busked again under an archway. The acoustics were nice and it was the best music of the day. Bolton is a tough busk though. There are simply so many needy people in every doorway. Some passive, some going from person to person trying their luck. 
There were so many, they couldn't all find a spot at once and would roam the streets, politely waiting for someone else to move on so they could grab a doorway. There seems to be an informal code of conduct, respecting each other's space, but moving on voluntarily every so often so everyone gets a go. Sometimes a police officer will come round the corner and they'll desperately gather their few belongings together and strike urgently with a haunted look in their eyes, the gently pacing officer displacing the homeless a hundred yards further up the street like a bow wave pushing ahead of a ship. Heartbreaking that those who could most use a bit of support from the tools of state instead considering it safer to run from them. Such an atmosphere of desperation makes it hard to succeed as a busker. Your need is not greater than that of the rough sleepers of whom there are so many. I wondered why Bolton had such a large homeless population. There were rough sleepers in just about every town in England, but Bolton is exceptional. On my third day in Bolton, a young rock band was setting up for a busk on the main square. I got a coffee and watched back from a respectful distance. I'd already had a busk myself and made very little. Between the many rough sleepers and the numerous smartly dressed Jehovah's Witnesses and their free magazines on racks, Hands were remaining in pockets and eyes down. My music had been a magnet for the more aggressive beggars to operate nearby and I was getting nowhere. The band kicked off with the House of the Rising Sun. They were good. The singer was charismatic and sang the rock classics with a slick sense of purpose and an absolutely tremendous Lancashire accent. <laughs> Sadly, they didn't seem to be doing much better than me, so I gave them what little I'd made earlier. Bolton has a few good statues, mostly to otherwise forgotten industrialists. Paid for by public subscription, they all say. One of their most famous modern sons, Fred Dibner, has a splendid statue by a plinth mill engine further down the street. There are no women in statue in the town, other than the bare-breasted generic representations of woe at the war memorial. England is full of severe and oversized men looking down in death as they did in life. At least Fred is at street level and seems to be having a laugh with us. homeless came past, walking with a steady resigned purpose towards nothing in particular, like the remnants of a routed army returning from a lost war to a country they no longer recognised and were no longer welcome in. I got talking to some, handing over a few pounds each time. The stories they told me were all alike. Some would admit to having problems, yeah, a mate was keeping me off the drink, but then he moved on. Others wouldn't, but each one of them had been renting from a private landlord who'd sold out. They'd then not been able to get anything else, unable to raise a deposit or provide proof of income. 
Bolton is on the edge of the great economic miracle that is Manchester, and rents are rising. Properties in demand, renewals and developments commonplace. Unable to satisfy the demands of a gentrifying housing market, a whole cohort of vulnerable people have fallen off the bottom. The supply of council houses utterly inadequate against this need. A rising tide lifts all boats, not if they've got a hole in the hull. Ironically, it may well be Bolton having turned the economic corner that has precipitated this disaster. The money that's come from the rise of Manchester has left Bolton unaffordable to the weakest. So why not leave? After all this travelling around, I knew if it happened to me, I'd go straight to a provincial market town and try my luck there. But that's easy for me to say. Every man I spoke to only knew Bolton. It's where they grew up. It's where they knew the streets. Still knew a few friendly faces. Not only that, but if you move, you start at the bottom of the list again. A fate which acts as a terrible disincentive to use your initiative. I know from elsewhere that women and children are prioritised on waiting lists and the undersupply of accommodation and support is so severe that many of these men will never get near enough to the top for anything to happen. They are trapped in the only town they know, afraid to try anywhere else for fear of it being worse and losing the only community they had left each other. The sheer numbers left everyone else poverty blind. I believe almost everybody is fundamentally compassionate, but when a single walk to the shop for a pint of milk presents you with more human suffering than you can ever imagine being able to help with, you are forced to ignore it and save your compassion for a problem you can solve. Across the street from the last bloke I spoke to, the Jehovah's Witnesses had their stand. The headline this week was, Who is God? But they seemed withdrawn too, out on the streets with an obligation to save souls, but unengaged, too much to save. I finished most of my conversations with the street sleepers with something like, I wish I could do more, to which they all replied with, nah, you're all right, mate. And they meant it. There was an extraordinary lack of blame or jealousy among them, just a sadness and a will to get through the day in the hope that their luck might change tomorrow, a space in the shelter might open up. A man in the coffee shop offered a warm view, though, an unexpected cockney voice. He'd been here 10 years, having met a Bolton girl, opening his shop three years ago. I love it here, it hit rock bottom a few years ago, but it's coming back nicely now. I left for the first time on my trip down on my busking over three days. What little I'd made, I'd given it all away and more. A beautiful industrial town that doesn't have the answers right now. It's rapidly becoming a better place if you're riding the wave and a worse one if you're not. The best food market in the northwest, lovely architecture and open spaces. Manchester just down the road, plenty of culture. Great countryside with an easy reach but the streets are a human tragedy without an obvious end in sight. Steaks across the board. We've got some superb ribeye steak on there. That's your superb ribeye steak and your sirloin steak. Any trade for the fiver. Absolutely superb. All lovely and lean. Guaranteed to be tender. That's your ribeye steak, your sirloin steak. Superb trays of steak today. Only a fiver now. We've got your brazier steak and your rump steak, those are still a five and a tray. Stewie steak, mince steak, here, yeah, still less than 5% fat, here, yeah, still a five and a tray to be had. You got your boneless pork steaks, your belly pork, they've got a five and a tray. Lovely and lean, fresh pork now, belly pork or pork steaks, only a five and a tray. Lamb chops, here, yeah, big bags of lamb chops, only six quid. That's minted or plain, your lamb chops. <laughs>
Carlisle. At 9pm on a Friday and Saturday, Botchergate, part of the A6, is shut to all traffic, with gates drawn across and traffic diverted right around the town. It's not seen worth the risk of leaving it open as people flood from bar to bar in growing states of drunkenness. Friday is payday and Carlisle knows how to celebrate this. I was out with my friend Lucy, a Carlisle native and my guide for the evening. It seemed appropriate to start the night by being present for the ceremonial closing of the gates. In my mind, this was sure to be a grand performance. I imagine a hooded and robed figure, the master of the gates, surrounded by flaming torch bearers, emerging from the darkness down by laser quest and theatrically, <laughs> and theatrically closing the gates to the wailing of bagpipes and the shamanic chanting of a febrile crowd. At 9pm, we were at the south end of Butchergate, just past the last bar, and not a lot was happening. The moon was full and bright, and was rising slowly over the kebab house. <laughs> at ten past, we started to doubt ourselves and wondered if perhaps it wasn't going to happen tonight. But finally, we saw the glint of a high-vis uniform in the distance, heading down from the railway station. He was a young police officer, and was clearly surprised to see us out waiting for him like this. This was not normal, and I detected a small moment of worry as I got my notebook out to ask him all about it. <laughs> he said they shared the job from week to week between the officers. He went around the corner to activate the diversion signs and returned to close the gates themselves. As the second gate clanged shut and he locked it in place, we gave a polite but enthusiastic round of applause and I asked if he wouldn't mind posing by the gate for a moment for a photograph. This he did, his community policing training, narrowly overcoming his obvious desire to get away from these nutters. <laughs> his quiet evening task transformed to a choreographed performance under critical appraisal. Photos taken and interview done, we let him go, and he ran off into the night as fast as professional dignity would allow. <laughs> If there's a measure of Botchergate's significance in the panoply of English drinking streets, it's that there's no fewer than two cavernous weatherspoons next door to one another. It was into the higher of the two, the William Rufus, we poured ourselves a little later. It was still early on in the grand scheme of things, and conversation was just about possible under the music. Having tried and failed to explain fractals to me, Lucy rolled a cigarette and headed out of the nearby door to smoke it. I pulled on my hoodie and followed her out. The bouncer was onto me in a flash, irate that I dared to walk out of this particular door. Can't you fucking read what it says? He bellowed into my face. I pulled the door back a bit and carefully read the sign to him, deadpan. Push bar to open. <laughs> He did not appreciate this answer. <laughs> you can't go out of there, it's a fucking fire door! Well, I'm terribly sorry, it wasn't obvious, but now you have explained my error to me, I promise not to make a similar mistake in the future. The bouncer desperately read through this in his mind and searched for something to object to. Failed and slammed the door behind me and gestured through the glass in the direction of the approved but otherwise identical door of re-entry. <laughs> I rejoined my friend Lucy. You got me in the shit there, mate. Yeah, it's pretty funny to watch. <laughs> we tried the other weather spoons next door. 
It was a mess, it was crowded and dirty, and the gents had a trail of shitty footprints leading to an abandoned five-amp fuse. <laughs> a series of clues that even the great literary sleuths like Poirot and Scooby-Doo might have struggled to get to the bottom of. <laughs> we soon drank up and tried our look at concrete, a nightclub. It was dead, so we went back down Butchergate again. It wasn't quite the drunken riot I'd been expecting. There were a lot of bored bouncers. Some resigned to their fate. Others, like the coked-up bruiser in the first Weatherspoons, looking for any minor infringement to leap upon so to justify their continued existence. It's coming up to Christmas. Fridays are dead. Everyone goes out Saturday this time of year. Such was my luck. We went into a nightclub called Bronx with a bottle bar and a five-pound pool cue deposit and played pool. I made a strong start and cleared all my reds away. Lucy fluffed her shot and dropped the cue in despair. We were about to abandon the match when we received another of my occasional visitations from the fairy kingdom. <laughs> a little old fella with thinning blonde hair and a soft Cumbrian accent was suddenly by her side. You must never give up, lass. Never give up. <laughs> He seemed to freeze the time around the table, a bubble of calm. He carefully picked up the abandoned cue and with a nod of permission, took up her cause. I had one shot on the black and it wasn't potable, so I moved it into the middle of the table for next time. A little old fella then carefully and methodically potted yellow after yellow, never hitting it hard, just rolling the balls gently into the pockets. After the black followed them all in, he handed the cue back to Lucy and holding her hand, looked her in the eye and repeated the message. Never give up, lass. In pool or in life. <laughs> Lucy turned to me and said, I think I love him. <laughs> we looked back and he had gone. <laughs> it was now well past midnight and with two Coronas for five pounds, we were wondering what to do next. A bunch of lads came in and headed straight for the boxing machine, where the investment of 50p causes a punch bag to be lowered from the ceiling, allowing punches to be measured for their power. I found it remarkable just how often the score would narrowly exceed the previous effort, causing the lads to dig around for another 50p for another more definitive round. <laughs> After a while of watching this, Lucy told me that she used to go out with the brother of one of the lads and shouted them over. I was amazed at just how open they all were with me. Within a short while, I was learning all sorts. One lad was approximately the middle child of 11. And in his words, she had 11 kids because she was too lazy to want to work. Well, the stories were of relatives lost to drug addiction and wasted on the streets. They didn't show much compassion for these characters they described, but this was not for a lack of humanity. But when there's so many problems to deal with, you have to prioritise those who seem most worth spending your compassion on. Sometimes people just had to be cut for the sake of others. It was a survival tactic and it was bleak. I told him how much it made me realise my own upbringing had been incredibly lucky and I was sorry it had been so tough for him. Nah, not at all. It makes you who you are, doesn't it? I've got four of my own now and I'll look after them. It was 1am in the Bronx nightclub and people were just stood around talking candidly about the most personal details of their lives to near strangers. Carlisle's like that. It's rough and it's tough, but it's friendly to the point of innocence. Your weekend night out takes on some pretty big significance if life is bleak the rest of the time. 
At 1.45 a.m., I finally had to admit that Lucy, a woman half my size, had drunk me under the table and I returned to my B&B, leaving her in the club with the lads, and I fell asleep with my notepad open on my bed. Runcorn. A bald, smiling man emerged from the furniture shop next door. Are you intending to play there all day? It was a polite question and without edge. Well, perhaps another half hour before I get myself some lunch. Ah, lovely. I know we all have a living to make. Aye. And there was a moment of silence and we both took a second to appreciate the sunshine and the pleasant day. It's just, perhaps after lunch, you could make yours over there. <laughs> Braintree. The security guard took an interest in my project. Would you like to see Britain's most haunted auto park centre? <laughs> I said, yes, I would. The man inside said, you put stuff down and it moves. Doors bang, the steps upstairs when there's nobody in. Stuff moves around. It makes stock taking a nightmare. <laughs> You have been listening to excerpts from the book Seasons of Change, written and performed by Tom Kitching. The music featured is mostly from the album of the same name, performed by Tom Kitching and Marit Felt. You also heard field recordings of butcher shops in Leeds Market and Witness Market. The stories were recorded live at the Guybridge Theatre by John Looms and Peter Crowther. The Seasons of Change podcast was produced by John Looms at Talking Cat Studios.